Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Welcome to the podcast hosted by, what did I call myself? An average whiny gray bearded podcaster. That was straight from Twitter, straight from my incredibly in-depth imagination. Welcome to the Pat Phillip podcast. Once again, hi you guys, I'm Pat Bulger. I'm not going to be very long in my introduction for this one. Uh, mainly because I got, I was able to talk to somebody who's in broadcasting and who's in podcasting and who can uh, chat it up and make things interesting the entire time. So I'm probably making a good chunk of you guys really happy that you don't have to actually fast forward through the next 15 minutes while I ramble on about how poor and how difficult my, my individual life is and how I'm getting slower. And I want to buy more things. Although, it, you know, I've got... You, all being aside, I'm also I'm almost getting into the point where I want to buy a small RV to be able to travel to the live shows and to actually ride and stuff like that. But I won't go into that. I'm sorry, I won't go into that. Today on the show, you guys, we have the host of all the host shows under the VeloCast umbrella, John Galloway. I kind of been stalking John for a while. If you're a fan of his podcasts, you know that they are basically at the forefront of cycling. Being a cycling podcast, that might be difficult for me to say, but if you're a fan of this show, you know I'm not really going to be coming at you with all the most pertinent ready to go information and so I refer to those guys uh, everybody over at VeloCast and their productions is is spot on you get daily coverage you get all the in-depth stuff and a lot more interviews with some of the riders and the organizations involved therein uh, they've been doing a great job with it for a long time they came up with a subscription model and how to present their material consistently and heaven forbid actually make a small living at it so I'm not going to give any sponsor mentions on this show because they actually might want to use it on their end, and I don't know if they're actually in love with the sponsors we're involved with or things like that, but you guys know who sponsors this show, right? I'll give them a double plug next show, I promise. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, let's get to John Galloway on the Pack Filler Podcast. Uh, 
All right, everybody. Today's guest, I'm sure, is no stranger to the audience. He hosts the popular and CMA, that's not Country Music Awards, that's Cycling Media Awards winning podcast under the VeloCast umbrella. Show features great insight, personalities, and race coverage. Welcome to the show. As he said, the Scott with a cold, John Galloway. How are you, man? I'm very well, Pat. I'm feeling slightly intimidated. I was uh, looking back through your recent shows, and I saw Charlie Kelly was on a couple of shows ago. You know, he's a legend of the sport. Oh, and you know what? I I got to actually not only conduct the interview with Charlie, uh, you know, just audio, but I got to see him on Skype in his in his natural habitat, and it was everything you could possibly imagine. You know, it was a it was an old kind of a wooden shed looking structure with bikes hanging in the background and he was let's just say he might he made my beard look like just you know some kind of a douchebag you know pencil lined scruff and uh seeing charlie in the background was just yeah that's why i can't put video on skype calls because i think the people would just see me staring at them the entire time and they'd probably get away as quickly as possible no, no. What you say is you've taken the video away so that you can maximize the quality of the audio. Oh, shit. That's good. That's really yeah. good. I always just say I have a face for radio. It's funny, though. I mean, when you think back, um, you know, we were talking via DMs before uh, we sat down to record. Yeah. And, you know, you were saying perspective on American cycling and the differences between American and European cycling. America has given cycling so much over the decades, you know, and people only go back to maybe, I don't know, George Mount or, or Jock Boyer or, you know, the generations after that. But way before that, you know, the Madison was first named yeah. after Madison Square Gardens. Major Taylor was a kind of worldwide sensation. And, you know, folk like Charlie have changed the sport fundamentally. The mountain bike really, although there were, you know, outliers in, in the UK and that kind of thing, really came from that whole repack culture. So, you know, you've got a lot to be proud of over there. Well, I'm going to get to some of that too, because right now, if if if, if there was a, a term to define where USA Cycling is right now, especially in the area I live in, it would be either a growing pain or a drought. Um, I'm just not really sure which one it is in right now. But, but before I get to that, I want to get some kind of perspective on you. Um, and <laughs> I, <it's, laughs> he laughs. Um, what's your cycling background? Have you always been a cyclist? Where did, what is your history and how did you come to this point? Oh, um, of course, I cycled as a child for the whole freedom thing, which I think all of us remember. Yeah. You know, where just that extra few miles that you could get away from home was, was absolutely vital to, to becoming an adult. But then mid-teens discovered guitar and, and frankly, women, <laughs> and it dropped by the wayside. Um, but I've always been a mountaineer. I've always loved mountains. So I started taking up cycling again, probably in my early 20s, um, to keep fit for the hill, just to keep fit for climbing yeah. and to use as a mode of transport. And then I drifted into cycle retail. Of course, then you're surrounded by a whole group of folk who are as passionate about the device as you are. And that led to racing. So I became a time trialist because that's what we do in Britain. You know, the, the British cycling culture is really, really centered on time trialing because originally mass racing on the road was illegal. Yeah. Um, and I really enjoyed racing until... I fell off mountain biking, smashed my elbow and shipped my hip. And oh. then I just became a, a fat tourist and I remain <laughs> so to this day. Okay. So, there was so much going on in that response. Uh, but now, <clears throat> at what point did uh, this goal lead to the concept of creating this, well, for me, futile passion in creating what you, what you now have as the Velocast and all that sort of stuff? Was it, was it just an idea that popped out of nowhere? Was it something... That, 
you know, that grew from a broadcast background or where did it come from? Well, my colleague in the in the business, Scott O'Rourke, um, bought a bicycle from me when I was in bike retail. And we became friends. Uh, you know, as people drifted in and out of the shop, we discovered we were both musicians. Uh, so one year I had a spare seat in the car and asked if he wanted to go to the Eurobike show, which is a big trade show yeah. in the south of Germany. And during that show, we got to talking and I was wandering around going, you know, this does that, that works with this and all that yeah. kind of stuff. And we came back and Scott's background is in media production. And he pestered me for months saying, you know, we need to do a podcast. And this was in uh, 2009. And I said to him, you know, who wants to listen to two Scotsmen waffling on about cycling? <laughs> but he kept going on and on and on at me. And we started um, originally a weekly show that covered all aspects of cycling, you know, mountain biking, urban cycling, pro racing. Uh, but it became more and more focused on pro racing because that's where a real interest lies. And you know this, Pat. You can't podcast if you don't have passion about what you're talking about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, you know, the passion for road racing led to us to do daily shows from, I think, the 2011 Tour de France, which just started to take up so much time. It was hard to fit in other work, uh, you know, and just making a living and putting you know, bread on the table. So 2013, we made a, a make or break decision. We said, we'll ask people for money for the daily shows. If it works, we'll carry on because it frees up the time. If it doesn't, we'll stop. We know we've tried and we've had a great few years and it built from there. And now it's a subscription service. I mean, there's, there's a fair bit of free content, but people pay us either an annual fee or a monthly fee. They get uh, usually two weekly shows, the Velocast, which is Scott and I, you know, bumping our gums about cycling. Yeah. Uh, this Week in Cycling History, which is just what it says. It's a it's a history show about the sport. Daily shows from the classics, uh, from the Grand Tours, and from some of the more minor tours, things like the Dauphiné and the Tour de Suisse. And the biggest complaint we get from people is they can't keep up. Because when it is your job, you know, when you don't have to squeeze it in as a hobby, then you've got the time to produce, you know, huge amounts of content. But it's, you know, it's better than going down a mine for a living. <laughs> really happy doing it. Well, the, I, I always find myself, I mean, everybody, podcasts anymore are kind of like, let's be honest, like assholes. Everybody's pretty much got one anymore now. Oh, yeah. Do you ever find... I mean, but I find myself looking at people going, hey, you know, shut up. You just, you've been doing it for a short amount of time. I've been, I've been doing this since 1999 and I don't want to talk about how much money I'm not making, but do you, do you find that, that there are other shows that are, or other people that are coming in in terms of, of, of competition? You guys, I mean, from what I listen to, I listen to your guys' show regularly and, um, you guys have seemed to kind of set the model, and I don't know. I don't mean to sound like that. I'm kissing up too much, but do you guys tend to find other people or copycats are kind of coming up or things like that? I think the problem now. Um, I mean, when we started, there were very, very few decent shows. I mean, before we started, I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of time listening to what was out there, and there were some good shows. Um, you know, uh, David Bernstein doing the the Fred cast. Yeah. I thoroughly enjoyed. It was different from what we do. Uh, the two Johns. Yeah. who would do shows that were a week long, you know, that, I mean, they would record shows that were four or five hours long yeah. sometimes, and they've <laughs> just returned. And a few others that were thoroughly enjoyable listening, but there were just a handful. Now, um, talking to subscribers, you know, looking at the, the products that are on offer, you know, the content that's on offer myself, there's almost too much. You know, you're just drowning in cycling podcasts, where once we were, for example, the only daily podcast from the yeah. Giro, now there are three or four. 
and the problem with it for a business model for us is we've got a, you know a big chunk of loyal listeners who've been with us for you know four or five years. I was just chatting to a listener in America today. Lots of stuff out there that's it might not be of the same quality that you or I would broadcast. Uh, it might not be as interesting as you would want it to be, but it's good enough and it's free. So it's getting harder to make a living. I mean, it's a, it's a regular folk to keep us going. But you've constantly got to reinvent yourself. And that's good, you know, because it keeps you interested. If you just coasted along doing the same thing all the time, it'd be, you know, it'd be adult life indeed. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I do have to say, it's kind of funny you mentioned uh, quality and, and everything like that. And and uh, my Skype kicked out for that time. So that's just our ironic little <laughs> little. Sp- bat there for the for the show um and well it's your fans the fans are a really passionate group um do you hmm. get when you make these types of changes are there reactions positive negative or things like that with the, the show might receive oh absolutely i mean we looked at uh, our biggest problem because we're a, a subscription model is bringing in new listeners you know getting content to new people so they can listen and if they enjoy it they can subscribe so last year we started a thing called the Velocast Briefing, which was just a five-minute show um, on weekdays about the latest news in the cycling scene. And we thought, this is great. You know, people will hear it. They'll then move on to listen to the other free content. Then they might subscribe. All of our subscribers hated it. To a man, they hated it. Dear God, did they let us know they hated it. <laughs> and that's that's the bad thing about all of this engagement with, you know, listeners, with subscribers, is it's great when they're happy, but when they're not happy, you hear about it very quickly. Yeah. But that's fantastic because what that gives us, I mean, I'm in Peebles in Scotland. Um, I don't know if you can tell by the accent. Wow. It's it's a bit of a backwater. So, you know, that contact with subscribers gives me access to, to a social life within cycling that I would never have had without this. You know, I've met fantastic folk that I now regard as friends that I would never have done if I hadn't sat down, you know, nervously in front of my, a microphone, yeah. you know, eight years ago. Yeah. Yeah, so let's let's talk about that. The, you know, the heaven forbid the sport itself a little bit. Um, I've been around in the sport for quite a while. I'm sure you know. I don't know what your your you know lifespan has been like in the sport, but in your opinion, is there a time period, a decade, or a generation that you might consider the best in terms of the sport, and and why or why not? I think everybody's got one of those, haven't they? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. My first memory of watching the sport is um, on a, a UK sports program called World of Sport. And it was coverage of the stage around Portsmouth of the Tour de France in 1974 when I was 11. Okay. I was born in 1963. And that, separately actually from cycling, because I, it's an interest that kept going even when I wasn't actually riding a bike myself, that gave me a fascination for cycling as a sport because I think it's unique in the, you know, the, there's a, an individual winner, but it's still a team sport. Yeah. And I, I find that whole dynamic fascinating. And then I managed to keep up with it um, by, you know, back papers and newspapers, by Winning magazine, which I still have, you know, really fond memories of getting my copy of Winning and leafing <laughs> through every single page. Um, but it was when Channel 4 in the UK started covering the Tour de France, which was mid-80s. Um, it was the perfect format. You got about 20 minutes of action, which, if we're honest, is probably all the action there is in any given stage in a day, although we can sit <laughs> down. And, you know, you were talking to Ian Boswell last week about, you know, sitting down for five hours to watch a stage. Yeah. And I think he nailed it. You know, the, the Channel 4 format worked because that 20 minutes was enough to tell you the story of the stage without it being dull. So for me, I mean, my favourite cyclist is Greg LeMond. 
Um, wow. you know, absolutely no competition. And it was a real thrill. We, we managed to get him to, to introduce the show for us. So every so often we trot, you know, trot out Greg. And I loved the way he rode. I loved the fact that he was a contender in, you know, virtually every race he turned up at, whether it was a classic or a Grand Tour or whatever. But the fight between Le Monde and Eno, I remember oh, the yeah. shift over to Enderine because I was a time trialist. You know, Enderine was a time trialist who, who beat the climbers yeah. for whatever reason. I mean, that's a different discussion entirely. <laughs> and then, you know, the fairy tale of Armstrong, which we can look back at with, you know, 2020 hindsight, but at the time was fantastically entertaining racing. I think everything from 85 through to, I would say, probably the end of the Armstrong era before his ill-fated comeback, I found absolutely fascinating. And it was as much due to the growth in media covering the sport as the sport itself. You know, I'm sure people from the 60s will tell you Onkatil was the best or yeah, whatever. Yeah. But for me, 85 through to 2005, I don't think there was a dull year. I loved every single bit of it. Well, first of all, there's, again, so much in that. First, I, I still have copies of winning lying around. I Some might classify me yeah. as a bit of a hoarder. Um, but it, I, I'm going to kind of call you out because you did say, you know, I, I said, you know, time period or decade, you picked 20 years. That's kind of cheating. But, um, yeah, I know. You know, <laughs> but, but no, I agree. I, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's our age and, and what we grew up with, but uh, the, you know, the, the Lamond, the Bernardi, no, the, the Sean Kelly, uh, even through Stephen Roche and all those types of generation, mm-hmm. that just seems like it was just maybe uh, again, it's because that's what kind of defined our, our love of the sport. But um, it it's just I don't know, and who you know who knows the reasons why, as you said, but uh, it, it it made for ex- exciting racing. Um, how it's about- funny actually because we we're amateurs. I do a show called This Week in Cycling History on the you know in the Velocast Productions yeah. feeds uh, with an Irish bloke called Kelly and Kelly, who I met through social media, just what we were talking about wow. when he called me out on. I'd recycled that old trope that Bernardino only rode Paris Roubaix once. He won it and said it was rubbish and never rode it again. And of course, <laughs> Killian sent me all the, the via via you know uh, Twitter, I think, sent me scans of all the start sheets for Paris Roubaix that you know had you know written. Oh yeah, yeah uh, and yeah. said you're entirely wrong. So we argued for a bit, and then I got chatting. Lovely bloke. I thought he'd be a crumbly old Irishman in his 60s. <laughs> Turns out he's a good-looking 28-year-old who can tell you who was fourth in the Dauphiné Libre in 1964 off the top of his head. Oh, shit. He's got so many magazines that he needed two medium-sized pickup trucks to move them when he moved house recently. So if you need any information, at Irish Peloton on Twitter, just ask Kelly and he'll tell you whatever you need. So we're amateurs when it comes to hoarding magazines, Pat. My wife is going to be so pissed off hearing this because she's going <laughs> she's been wanting me to throw away my winnings and my Velo news. I'm like, no, honey, this is the one with Tony Rominger on the cover. I got to keep that one. He got the hour record that year. And she's just like, well, just her eyes couldn't roll farther back into her head without falling out. It's just, I'm a hoarder with all that kind of stuff. I think I, my, my favourite moment with Killian was early in our recording. Um, I was chatting away to him before we pressed record, and his wife appeared in the in the room behind him, and she said, uh, "What's that on the table, Killian?" And Killian said, "Oh, it's a copy of Lotto from 2003, announcing the Tour de France was going to start." And all I heard was a sigh, and she went, "Of course it is." <laughs> You know, there are so many things that could be worse, though, for a for a wife. You know, I I don't buy cars for Christ's sake. I can't work on them. So I mean, honey, be happy that it's just bikes and magazines. 
<laughs> and as is the want of cycling people when they talk, I've no idea where that tangent started. So I'll have to rely on you to bring us back to to sanity. But well, I'm 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 just making this up as I go. Hey, how about how about interviews? Um, best you can't include Lamont because you've already said he's your favorite. Uh, the best ones, and if you'd be willing to offer up and tell us the worst interviews you've had on the on the air, on the show itself. Um, Ooh, I, the best one, I think, was Fabian Cancellara. Um, Scope, my colleague, travelled down to, to London and spent a day with Fabian as he went through his kind of press yeah. um, duties, managed to sit down with him. Um, did the same with, with Jens Wacht, sat down, or Voigt, I think, as, as Americans call him, yeah, uh, yeah. sat down. And Jens was, as ever, he's a fantastic raconteur. It was a fantastic interview. Uh, and there's been some really good ones. Uh, Helen Wyman, who's you know, fairly high profile in cyclocross just now, I had a fantastic chat with Helen. I think the worst I ever did uh, was, oh, I, I wouldn't name the rider, uh, but we went through a, a, a long, long conversation and I asked him at the end, uh, so what's it like working with Jonathan Botters? And <laughs> he'd never written for Jonathan Botters. I'd researched the wrong rider. Uh, and I don't think I've ever been as embarrassed in my life. <laughs> okay, so it wasn't necessarily the interview. It was your fault. It, no, it was entirely my fault. It yeah. was a fantastic interview. Um, it was a really nice interview and just free-flowing like this one is. Yeah. And at the end, for some reason, I got I got the riders mixed up in my head. Oh. Um, and he had written for Cervelo, but okay. no with Walters. Um I find myself occasionally, and you know, maybe it's you get to sit and look at them across the table, and that's that's something in itself that I would have a difficult time with because some of the interviews I've been able to do with my childhood heroes are I'm I'm bouncing up and down, and I'm 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 like a child, I'm stammering like I am right mm -hmm. now. It's just oh my god, I can't believe so and so's on the other end of this computer line. Um, I couldn't imagine yep. sitting across from him, staring at my notepad. It, it, they're just people, um, you know, it's the one thing they, no, they all share. And again, Ian talked about this last week when you were chatting to him, is they all have that passion for the bicycle. Yeah. You know, and they share that with us. And they're fans of the sport just as much as we are. So once you get started, it all just flows. It's funny, though. I mean, we, when I when I left my, my full-time work and when Scott left his full-time work to be Come, you know, full-time podcasters. Our plan was to to roam the globe, you know, getting on the on the scene uh, audio from everybody and all and sundry. And after a year of doing that, we actually discovered you do a better job actually sitting at home and paying people who are actually out there. <laughs> so these days, I do far less of you know the sitting down at a table than I used to. Most of the business is conducted via Skype, and we pay, you know, Ashley House who works for Eurosport. We pay him during the Grand Tours to produce daily content for us. Um, you know, we pay some people who go around the world tour to get interviews for us. Um, and when we do sit down to do an interview, there are occasions where it's face-to-face. -face. I mean, Scott's just back from the, the Katusha camp in yeah. Mallorca, uh, where he, he talked to Ian and Alex Dowsett and, all, you know, all of those guys. And that's great fun, and you do get that starstruck moment. But we actually discovered if you're trying to analyse a race, the best way to do it is sit down and watch it on the television. Yeah. You know, if you're at the roadside, if you're in the Arnberg Trench at Paris-Roubaix, all you hear is the rattling, the spitting, and them flying past at, you know, 60 yeah. kilometres an hour as they hit the cobbles at the foot of the hill. And then when you try to analyse it, and we like to get our shows out, you know, pretty soon after the races, we're usually published about an hour and a half after the race on, you know, on a grand tour. Yeah. If you're on the ground, you can't see it. 
you know. So we tend to stay at home now and pay people, uh, which gives it, us a bit less fun because I love being at bike races. You know, I'm a fan of bicycle racing, but it's a, a better product for the listeners, I think. Yeah. So speaking of, uh, you know, you're saying going to the races and things like that. I, I, I'd love to hear what's happening for you guys in terms of not the, necessarily at the pro ranks, but um, here in the States, for example, I just got a, a note this morning saying that my area weekly series has been cut down to four races for the entire mm. season. Um, area stage races and road races that we used to have are disappearing. Um, insurance, uh, you know, the fact that the, the, the population of, of cycling is consisting more and more of middle-aged men. And, and cycling is, is kind of at a crossroads here in the U.S., and it's scaring the hell out of me, to be honest. But um, wh- what are your thoughts on terms of, of what's happening where you are, even, even if you have a perspective into kind of a global concept of how road cycling specifically is doing and if it is getting better or worse or what might be the case? I think it's getting worse. I think you, you've hit a number of nails in the head there. Um, I think the one exception that proves the rule is cyclocross. Yeah, um, you know, in the states, the participation in cyclocross is is you know amazing. Yeah, um, it's the same in the UK, particularly. You know, I'm, I'm familiar with the Scottish scene. Uh, there was a cyclocross race yesterday, howling gales in the west of Scotland, horizontal yeah. rain, and there were probably seventy people having the time of their lives getting yeah. muddy. You know, so that participation is driving cyclocross. You also had people like Helen, who are really good ambassadors for the sport. You know, Katie Compton from the States. Uh, it's it's just, there's an excitement about cyclocross that feels like road racing used to feel to me. Time trialling, which is the, you know, the the heart of UK cycling. It's why we, we produce riders like Wiggins on, yeah. on such a regular basis, people who are good against the clock. Um, they're closing a lot of courses because, you know, increased traffic density, all that kind of thing makes it far harder to ride in the road. Um, so, you know, for road cycling, I'm, I'm kind of pessimistic. I mean, we sponsor um, a women's, a junior women's uh, racing team, Team 22, yeah. uh, which has been some of the proudest moments of my life, actually, seeing us put something back into the sport. But every so often, you know, you'll see development and then suddenly British Cycling, the organising body, will do something daft, like not take riders to the world where they could gain experience. Um, we we sponsor a kids club in our league and where all the kids are going what they're really interested in with very, very few exceptions is mountain biking. Yeah. And I can't blame them, you know, because, yeah, you, there's danger of breaking your bones. I mean, one of the reasons I became a, a portly podcaster as opposed to a racing cyclist is <laughs> went over the handlebars and smashed my elbow, as I said earlier. Yeah. But there's not the traffic issue. And I think the traffic problems and this polarisation that goes on between, you know, groups on the road, drivers hate cyclists and cyclists hate drivers and all that kind of stuff. It's just squeezing ever harder. And I'm genuinely worried about the road scene. Uh, although where I live in Peebles is, is world-class road riding beside possibly the most popular uh, mountain biking destination in in Europe, actually, Glentress, which is only a couple of miles from my home. Uh, there are a lot of road cyclists. But, you know, we're a honeypot. We drag cyclists in here. You look at the rest of the country and it's getting harder and harder to find races to ride. So I, I think we're sharing new experience, Pat. Yeah, and it's you mentioned mountain biking, how it, and it is still uh, consistent popularity here in the United States. Mainly, and I all, all honestly see it as, as a parent, when I was 
when I, my son was just getting involved into the sport, I would be more comfortable watching him bounce around in the trees than mm-hmm. him saying, I'm going to go out for a three hour road ride. I'll see you later. I can't believe my parents let me do that when I was, you know, 14 years old, just walk out the door and ride in traffic for three, four plus hours. Um, well, I mean, I, I worked in Edinburgh, which is 22 miles north of, of Peebles where I live. Um, and I used to commute on my bike and it was a great way to fit my training into just my normal day without taking chunks of time away from my wife um, and <laughs> never thought twice about it and stopped doing that in maybe 99, you know, maybe 2000. Um, got my hip replaced last year, if you remember, earlier on I mentioned yeah. I chipped it in the crash. It just got oh. worse and worse. So eventually, you know, last year we got it replaced and I'm able to ride a bike without pain for the first time in ages again, which is, you know, you can imagine the joy that that gives me. Oh, yeah. I'm terrified in the roads now. Yeah. And they're the same roads, but you know, it's not just the volume of traffic that's changed. The attitude has changed. And I would find it very hard as a parent. I mean, my three kids are grown up now, but as a parent watching their child just starting, I think I'd steer them towards mountain biking. Yeah. And that's really sad, you know, because we've got every bit as much right to be in the road as everybody else. Yeah, especially when the I you know, here we get a, I get a guy drive by me screaming at me, throwing things out the window saying you know, get off me on my roads. You don't pay taxes. And I'm just going, well, you do realize I also own a car, you jackass, you know, that, yeah. that I'm, I'm honestly a tax paying citizen. But it, it's just I agree with you. Once that once you get into the car, as opposed to straddling a top tube, people become different. And yeah, it becomes this competition. I've got to get to work 30 seconds faster. And that's got to be in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I, not to be too depressed, a couple of years ago I was run off the road before I, I stopped riding. Um, I was run off the road by a guy with a common sal and a Santa Cruz in the back of his car. <laughs> <laughs> and that's people driving down to go mountain biking in Glentress. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, you know, even cyclists when they get behind the wheel can sometimes be a bit unreasonable. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think um, that the drugs have been a part of reason why cycling's getting a hit? Uh, yeah, I really do. Uh-huh. Um, it's, it's the constant, constant drip, drip, drip. I yeah. mean, I, I mentioned I started watching in 74. I can't think of a single year where there hasn't been some issue with drugs. Um, and you know, it's easy to focus on he who must not be named and the seven tours that weren't won, <laughs> but you know, it was, it was just, I mean, he was an arsehole which yeah. is, you know, the, the main reason that people are happy to see him, you know, with the lifetime ban and there's yeah. the controversy about whether he should be at uh, the Tour of Flanders and stuff. Yeah. But I remember, you know, people talking about Indirane when Indirane was racing. Um, you know, back in the 80s, Sean Kelly was suspended. The great Eddie Merckx had multiple suspensions, yeah. but it was just a slap in the wrist. But the fact that there's been all of those exposures over the years means that now whenever we're confronted with excellence, as fans, yeah. if you're not, you know, a blind fanatic with blind faith in some team or rider, when you're confronted with excellence, it's understandable if you go, ah, we've been here before, we've seen it. And I actually feel it's unfair because I think in cycling, we are actually so far ahead of sports like tennis and, you know, soccer here in the UK that we deserve some credit. You know, we, we have managed to reduce it. And when the big scandal is salbutamol as opposed to, you know, recombinant EPO, yeah, then I, I think that's genuinely an improvement in some way but the history of the sport is is always going to hang over us and the UCI seem incapable of, of you know reconciling that conflict they have where they're the promoter of the sport and its guardian 
And that that promotes distrust as well. So, yeah, I think drugs are the one thing that are never going to go away because people will always want to cheat. But for cycling, I see a huge chunk of fans who are more fans of the drug taking than the sport. You know, so you've got that undercurrent of whining's yeah. the wrong word because they're right to be sceptical. But that scepticism, I think, can poison the enthusiasm for the sport for, you know, just about everybody that's watching it. Yeah, I follow a couple groups on social media that are that are talking about doping in sport and they are the most consistent posters, but they're they're passionate about the sport, yet they are the most skeptical and the most and the most yeah. consistently ones out there. You would think that as as cycling fans wanting to promote a sport that we would try to find a way to find some positivity. But no, I, I can see how they get spurned after a spare amount of time. I mean, I, you know, you mentioned mentioned uh, you shall not be named. Um, I, you know, I, I watched all those tours and I was jumping up and down in my living room watching those tours. Um, yeah, I knew he was an ass. And I think that's probably why he got punished so severely was because he oh, was yeah. a bigger ass than anybody else. Um Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. But I, I watched the 2005 tour last, last week. Yeah. And I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was fantastic entertainment. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, beautiful, beautiful racing. But, you know, and that, that part of me wonders if we ever get to a point where we have a clean Peloton, which we probably won't, how boring will the sport become? Because everybody's going to be honestly on the same level. Yeah. The only way that I can cope with it, and I mean, I nearly walked away. I've nearly done it twice while we've been podcasting, actually. I, I don't mean today, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> over the years since <laughs> we started. Um, and the only way I've been able to reconcile it is I just enjoy the sport as entertainment now and deal with the, you know, we have to talk about the scandals as they pop up, uh, but just deal with them as they pop up. If you just thought about the doping all the time, every single day, I, I think I'd walk away. I mean, you have to be able to reap some enjoyment from the sport you're watching and not just think about the dark, you know, underbelly all the time. Yeah. So I, I listened to the recent show you guys did in regards to uh, Katusha Alpeson's that new team model they put together, mm-hmm. kind of a similar concept of what I think they mentioned, uh, uh, kind of like the Premier League football, uh, as we say, soccer over here. Um, that concept of creating a team model, do you think that's something that is, is, that is going to become a new foray into the sport, that this is going to be something that becomes the new standard? I think I think it has to change, and I think Katusha have, have certainly made big steps in the in the move towards a sustainable model. I mean, we had um, voters with his you know his crowdfunding oh, yeah. to attract sponsors to the team. Uh, we've seen teams just disappear. You know, teams that have been in the the sport for 
decades even just disappear tell me in in, you know my generation springs to mind and you can't have a sustainable sport with a model where you can just lose the ability to do business in a week if your sponsor goes in a huff you know if andy reese decided that he hated cycling tomorrow bmc would be gone yeah so i think katusha have really hit on an idea where they have lots of different revenue streams you know and podcasters we do it you know with merchandise and all sorts of stuff but for a team to think about it as a whole where they can get you know holidays where you can go for a ride with marcel kittle uh, and you can wear the same casual clothing that the team wear and you know, it's not the sponsor that's profiting from the sales of that casual clothing. It's going straight into the pot for the team. I think it's the first really interesting attempt I've seen to change uh, the economics of cycling for a very long time. And I mean, Scott, um, on that that bit that you listened to, yeah. uh, talked about that. He's got probably about another three hours of interviews with more and more and more and wow. more ideas. So, you know, they're not doing it half-heartedly. It's going to be really interesting. And he also said the last time or the change since the last time Scott Bent spent time with Katusha is, you know, with folk like Ian and, and Nathan Haas and uh, Alex Dowsett and Tony Martin arriving, it felt far more like a coherent team this time as well. So I think that will raise the profile of Katusha, which will have the knock-on effect to benefit in the rest of their businesses. So I, I'm going to watch with real interest this year. It's going to be fascinating because they're selling loads of kit and it costs a fortune. So that enthusiasm for the for the brand that they're going to build with riders like Nathan and Ian, um, I, I think they could make it work. And if they do, I think we'll see others follow suit because we, we can't have a sport where people can just disappear on a whim. Yeah. And you know what? Jonathan Botter's almost tapped into something like that when the whole Argyle trend was a big thing. And that almost seemed like he had created an, not his own, his own brand, regardless of what sponsor was necessarily on the kit that, at that time. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I, I never understand. Scott, I remember, went to, he did some interviews with, with Walter's team at Flanders quite a number of years ago. It might have been 2014. And with the number of people who gather around these team buses, you know, at the big races particularly, I never understand why they don't just have a merchandise stall like at a rock yeah. concert. Yeah. You know, around the bus. It's all wee things like that that could make a, a genuine difference. Even if it's, you know, one swan year salary, it's one less salary to worry about. Yeah. So I think there has to be change. And I think Walters is certainly driving some of that, albeit I think it, the whole Velon project is, is slightly misguided. But Katusha and, you know, they're, they're hooking together of holidays and clothing yeah. and a racing team is is another one. I think we're going to see loads of innovation because the sport needs it. You know, yeah. it, it, there's, there's a lot of desire for change in the way the sport's funded. And that's got to result in some changes coming in the next decade, I think. Yeah, and I think that's also going to be the, the trend for event promoters themselves too. They're going to have to see ways to attract people, not just the bike racers who show up, take the bike off the off the car, do the race, and then leave. You're going to need to create some sort of an environment that more people are going to be want to, attracted to, that, that communities are going to be more willing to block off roads and those type of elements. And, uh, yeah, it needs to happen. Yeah, and you, you, I think you're going to see it. I mean, we saw uh, after the, the terrible Brussels uh, attacks yeah. um, on the, the, big, the big bergs in the Tour of Flanders, they closed off for security reasons, uh, you know, the Udaquaramont and, and the other big claims, and checked everybody in, checked their backpacks, all that kind of stuff, so that there wasn't the chance of a, a suicide bomber. I could easily see race organisers starting to do that just purely for income. 
And the way that they do in cyclocross, you know, you've got a beer berg yeah. where you pay, a, you know, an entry fee and you get to stand, watch it on a big diamond screen, uh, you know, drink some really good Belgian beer and cheer the guys when they go past. So I think there has to be innovation. And as fans, I think we have to accept it. We have to accept that, you know, there's a cost to these people doing business. And if we want the sport to flourish, we, we maybe have to pay. And, you know, that's what we did with podcasting is yeah. we just thought we're just going to ask. And I think if if people just ask and say, we need this funding, then the fans will step up to support them. And we saw that with Vorters. You know, the crowdfunding was a huge success, not just for the money it brought in, but for making that team credible for potential sponsors. Any new trends you see in the sport that are coming aboard? Uh, here in the States, uh, the new trend in the sport is probably something that you guys are quite tired of. It's the Fondo concept. Uh, they are becoming the new boom of of cycling. Um, is there any new styles of racing? Well, you mentioned cyclocross. I all, I was watching uh, the most recent World Cup event last night, mm-hmm. and it it struck me that cyclocross has almost a feel like um, mountain biking when it was in its in its boom. The courses and how they're designed. It's not this. Uh, I, it's almost like the the current cross country mountain bike racing has become almost like a you know trials ride. Just watching what those guys are going over, but I see cyclocross kind of taking that model and putting it in an in, in an area, and then people really attracting to it. Are there any other trends you see that might be growing into the sport, and what could be new on the horizon? The, I mean, the only two things I see are, are sportives, the you know the fondo things, um, are mass participation events. I mean, we have uh, the, the Tour of the Borders, which is centered in Peebles, my hometown which is on fully closed roads, which would have been unthinkable a few years ago. You know, the police agreeing to close the roads for essentially a recreational ride is oversubscribed at a cost of 70 or 75 quid, you know, $100 to ride. And every sportive that sets up just seems to attract a huge number of people. Now, I think it's actually, it's for people who are fit enough to race but are too scared to race most of the time. (laughs) Part of me thinks they should just sign up a race entry form and get out there and just do a race. But there's a lot of fun and there's no stress. So, you know, who am I to argue with that? The other thing which I see a lot of is actually off-road and it's enduro racing where they're taking difficult technical downhill sections and linking it with long, you know, aerobic riding fast sections and just about every cyclist that i know around here is is absolutely nuts for enduro racing so mountain biking is going to keep growing because it's safe you know just what we were talking about earlier but you know recreational cycling we're worried about you know actual races you and i both part but the recreational side of the sport seems to be going from strength to strength i mean our local cafe there were five bikes outside which were probably worth ten thousand dollars each last sunday yeah you know so the disposable income's there but it's people who maybe don't want the stress of racing because let's be honest even in a crappy amateur race you're still feeling sick and going to the toilet 27 times before the start line (laughs) you know so i mean it is a stressful thing so the fondo and the sportive i think answers the question for folk who just don't want that extra stress in their life and you know more power to it yeah, you know, you mentioned enduros, and I have a every time that word is brought up, I cringe because I before I knew what an enduro was, I signed up for one. I thought, wow, it's a fifty mile race. This is awesome. <laughs> I kind of like enduro endurance. It sounds similar, and so I sign up for it, and I find out it's these, you know three horrendous or four or five horrendous downhill sections and everything else is just a soft pedal to get to them. And I, 
downhill racing and I are not friends. And I, I think I crashed into the middle of the first section, made some sort of an audible sound that I think scared birds from the trees when I hit the ground. And that was the end of my enduro experience. So I won't even touch it. Second, no, it's a dangerous sport. It's, it's, it's a horrible. very dangerous sport. Yeah, I'm, I'm going, I'm in my 40s, and what the hell am I? I got to go to work on Monday. This is the dumbest thing I've ever thought of. And the other thing you mentioned is is these $10,000 bikes that are sitting outside of coffee shops. That makes me turn into a grumpy old man again because I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> this is some freaking architect who bought this bike, who's never ridden it, who just rode it from his house to the coffee shop, poses in front of the Starbucks, and then rides back home. And I, you know, I, I could be wrong, but when I see those bikes, I'm like, oh, you poser. I don't understand why. You, I mean, you have to trace on your train on your uh, race bike. Um, so I, I, I understand the need to ride it, but um, I don't understand the need for, you know, full zips and, and DI2 yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and all that kind of thing. Um, you know, but I'm, I'm an old fart like you. Yeah. You know, one of my friends has a, a theory that um, old steel guy is what he calls the, the wiry man who turns up on some, you know, <laughs> 1980s Patekia with 105 and, and absolutely <laughs> destroys the field. Um, it really annoys me when my current pet hate is seeing junior races, you know, where people were... Uh, cervellos with you know deep yeah. section rims and yeah. carbon handlebars and all that kind of thing. But I think I may just be a grumpy old man. Well, who are the parents that are buying that kid that bike? He's going to either crash it or grow out of it in three weeks. You're going to be stuck yeah. with this $10,000 bike. So uh, anyway, so now that we've got through a lot of the big serious questions, um, I hope you're willing to participate in what I just like to call my little lightning round. I have a series of things I'm going to ask you, and they're just quick fire responses so we can find out who John Galloway really is. Hey, uh, if you've listened to anything so far, you know I don't do quick fire. Well, but, you know, <laughs> let, let's try. Well, it's, you, you could take a little <laughs> bit of time to defend your responses. So, for example, our first question, steel, aluminum, or carbon? Uh, steel. Ste um, I have nothing but steel bikes, um, and it's because I like the way it rides. Uh, modern steels can perform, you know, within a hair's breadth of the best carbon. I mean, I, my my fast bike is a Stumper Taylor from uh, Oregon uh, with true temper steel, and it's amazing. Descends like a rock. The front end is completely solidly planted and comfortable for all day. Um, and it makes a proper proper pinging noise as opposed to a dull plastic noise when a, a rock comes up from the road and hits it. Okay, you just half of my listeners just either screamed in their cubicle at work of joy or wherever they are driving around because steel and Oregon, you just you just got two positive stars on your on your little list. If this was a grade school classroom. Second question. Uh, well, I, my, my other bike's a Co-Motion Norwester, which I've, oh. I've had for a very long time. Okay. I'm, I'm extremely fond of that, too. They are loving you in the land where you can't pump your own gas. <laughs> Second question, your dream bike. If you had to have a dream bike, what would it be? Um, actually, I've, I've got a couple of, uh, of thoughts for that, and one is related, I think, to my aging. I'm, I'm just talking to a British frame builder called Richard Hallett, who might be familiar to, to some of your listeners because he was the tech writer for Cycling Weekly and, oh, yeah. and a number of other publications. And I'm having um, a 650B road bike built with drop bars, but with, you know, fat 650B wow. tires. Yeah. Because, you know, as we're discovering, uh, rolling resistance isn't in any way related <laughs> to a tire being skinny the way we used to think when I was a, you know, a time trial board. Yeah. So I want something that's reasonably quick, but quite comfy. 
Um, so that's my, my big dream bike just now because I, I don't particularly think I'll ever be able to go properly fast again. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I feel like... Um, you know, a monkey on a bicycle when I go and ride my, my tailor uh, because I, it's just too much bike for me. Um, it's too good for me. Um, <laughs> so my Hallet, which is coming up at some point soon, is, is one of those dream bikes. And the other thing is one big trend that's happening in the UK just now is is largely due to, I think, um, a German immigrant called Marcus Stitz who rode around the world a couple of years ago yeah. in a single speed. Oh, boy. Um, absolutely nuts i mean he's 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 a beautiful insane man um and he's really pushing the whole bike packing thing where you make long trips off road but you know not on technical terrain uh, easy single track at yeah. most but you, you're you're carrying your own luggage and you're covering the way that i used to when i was you know if the weather was too bad to go climbing when i was in the mountains i'd go for a long glen walk or whatever so I quite fancy getting into uh, off-road bike packing, largely through following Marcus and his single speed around the world thing. Yeah. So, that's... you know, a mountain bike, rigid forks, uh, slack angles, and able to carry a lot of luxury would be, you know, the second of my dream bikes getting... after the the Hallett 650B. We're getting a lot of those uh, gravel type of events that are becoming yeah. really popular. That style, style terrain. Uh, well, one of our listeners um, rides something every year called Dirty Kanza. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Which looks absolutely insane. It is. It is 1,000% insane. <laughs> Honestly, yeah. I, I don't think the human posterior can take that much abuse, but those guys seem to be able to do it. He came over in one year, he rode Dirty Kanza and the Paris-Roubaix Sportive. Oh. So he's clearly got testicles of iron. <laughs> or they're just gone. Yeah. <laughs> Look like California raisins. How many bikes do you own is my next question. How many are in the house? Uh, three. Three? Um, I've got the two that I've just talked about, and I've kept my old steel low-profile time trial and bike um, largely just for, for the sake of uh, nostalgia. I don't have a mountain bike just now because having had my hip replaced last yeah. year, I got one out of the house because I know myself too well to know that I'd be able to resist <laughs> the pool of Glen Tress, you know, two miles away with some yeah. of the best single track in the world. Uh, I will add a mountain bike back in probably this year uh, because a year on the hips essentially stronger than the, you know, yeah. the natural one. So yeah. I'm going to start riding off-road again. So a mountain bike will reappear this year. Um, I'm not sure what it'll be yet. Is that including family members, just three bikes in the house? Uh, yeah. Wow. I've got my Two of my older children have left home, okay. um, so they've got their bikes with them. Uh, my middle son, I'm ashamed to say, can ride a bike but doesn't like to. I remember when he was five, he said to me if he wanted to you know, get somewhere fast, he would get the bus. If he wanted to look at the scenery, he'd walk. Uh, so you know, the, the bicycle just holds no interest for him. So he's at home just now. He's just graduated from university, and he's going to go and teach uh, English in China for a year. But we've got him. He doesn't have a bike. And my wife can't even ride a bike, I'm ashamed to say. Wow. Okay. Okay. That that explains a lot for you know because I I'm trying to offset for the fact that I have 17 in my house and um actually 14 because my son took three to college. <laughs> <laughs> well, when when all the kids were at home, they had two bikes each. Okay. Uh, for okay. The, the two so who have left home, so it would have been seven. Okay. Uh, and at the time, I had two mountain bikes, so that would have been nine. So. I wasn't far behind you when I was in your situation. Okay, okay. Um, this You're right. This isn't rapid fire, but I'm going to keep going. Is beer a proper recovery drink, in your own opinion? 
Uh, beer is the only recovery drink, in uh, my opinion. Oh, yes. If so, uh, can, now that I know if so, which is the favorite beer of choice for recovery? Um, I, or just any time? If I had to pick one favorite beer, um, it would probably be Duval. Um, but, oh, yeah. you know, when you visit a race in Belgium, uh, you, you know, you get a, you get a beer list which is as long as a good wine list in a, a fancy restaurant, um, and you just it's it's your duty to try and work through as many of them as you possibly can. Okay, great. I just had my last Duvel, and I I keep pronouncing it incorrectly now. I know to say Duvel instead of Duvel, so I I've sure been I, I, I was I was shouted at by a Belgian when I asked. But a Duvel. Really? So it's Duvel. <laughs> Duvel, okay. That's good to know. That's really good to know. Uh, best cyclist of all oh, time. Actually, before we move on Go. from beer, yeah. can you put less hops in your IPA over there? Oh, see, that hurts a little hard. Um, I used to actually, I hated IPAs forever. I, My wife and I used to warmly refer to IPAs as whatever earwax might taste like. <laughs> but you know what? I've come around. I'm actually, I actually brew my own IPA now. And um, it's our hops. We're in the, I'm in the Northwest. It's our cascade. It's those types of hops. And we just, I guess we're terrified that it might spoil or something like that. So we keep adding more hops. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I, I love American craft ales. I, I love the beers that are coming out from all over your country. But, you know, some of the IPAs, they're just too hoppy oh, for yeah. me. Um, you know, a, a good old school IPA with a bit more balance for yeah. me. It destroys your palate. You don't, don't have one of them before dinner, or unless you don't like what's being prepared and then you're good to go because the taste buds, <laughs> it's, it's like those Szechuan peppercorns. It just numbs your whole mouth. Well, I was in China for a month this year. Uh, you're going to have to edit huge chunks of this out for you. No, nah, I'm running the whole damn thing as it is. But craft brewing is getting big in China. Um, and there was a place called uh, Great Leap Brewing in Beijing, okay. which their signature beer is called Honey Ma Gold. And it's honey. Uh, it's, a, it's a white beer. Oh, but it's seasoned with Sichuan pepper. <laughs> and it's delicious. Oh. But after three pints of that, forget Tasting anything else for the next day. <laughs> you don't know if your mouth is numb from the peppercorn or from the alcohol. <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Oh, my God. All right. Uh, best cyclist, and you cannot include Merckx in the statement. Uh, Greg Lamont above Merckx. Okay. Um, my my, my top four in order are Greg Lamont, uh, Bernardino, Sean Kelly, and then Eddie Merckx. Okay. That's, wow. Merckx is that far down. Okay. Okay. No, you know... You got to take time periods into the into the equation too. Sean Kelly is personally one of my all time favorites too, so you're you're good there. I had the huge pleasure a few years ago for a year um, before where we were still playing with business models before we decided just to go all in and ask for a subscription. Uh, we did a, a podcast for Eurosport, and I had the delight of watching the day before Paris Roubaix, Sean ride the Arnberg trench repeatedly with cameraman to get footage for a color piece for oh. Eurosport the next day. And it was the day of the Paris-Roubaix Sportive. So watching good, good, honest club cyclists, you know, guys who are fast on a bike, ride the Arnberg Trench and watch, you know, an ancient now, I mean, he's getting on yeah. a bit, Sean Kelly, ride it at the same time as them. It was like watching, it was like watching someone walk on water. I mean, it was just one of the best cycling experiences in my life. Just standing with my jaw wide open in shock, watching, you know, my hero, Sean Kelly, ride the Arnberg Trench. Yeah. I'll, I'll remember that till I, the day I die. 
<laughs> I've always told my wife that when I die, she has to cremate me and sprinkle me over the over the Kamenberg cobbles. I mean, the Arenberg cobbles. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 there are worse places to you know to end up. You get to watch a good bike race in spirit. Yeah, you? exactly, exactly. Or you know, maybe somebody will, I'll I'll cause a crash or something like that just because my ashes were too slippery. <laughs> best best team kit of all time. Ooh, oh no, oh, that's a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> La Vie Claire. I love the Mondrian esque, yeah. uh, you know, blocks of, of La Vie Claire. Uh, just striking without being, you know, horrible and garish. Second, and it's a very close second, would be the Brooklyn kit. Okay. Yeah. Um, you know, with the, the stars and stripes, essentially. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, because for the same reason, it was just classy, but still stood out beautifully in a pack. Worst team kit of all time oh futon servetto do you remember that oh, brown thing with the foot God, on it the brown one right yeah, yeah. the whole thing was and it wasn't you know as you do our our, our brown shorts yeah this whole thing was brown and it just looked like they'd been <laughs> dipped in shit it was horrible <laughs> okay i was that actually i had forgotten about that i was gonna say you know like uh, uh Stephen roche wrote for was it tonton tapis i don't know how it oh that was terrible as well. that was yeah. a bad kit that was a bad kit um best peak of piece of cycling equipment that you own uh, the best piece of cycling equipment that i own um is a saddle which i bought a fairly large number of them a number of years ago uh, and it was Georgina Terry who is famous for making women, women's kit yeah. uh, they, they made some men's saddles uh, and the, the Terry Fly which later became a company called Ergon I think bought the bought the rights to the Ergon uh, Fly and it's one of those saddles where I'd moved on from you know my, my titanium flight stage which we all yeah. have when oh, yeah. we're you know young racing whippets and it still <laughs> looks quite sleek you know it's not a turbo or a rolls it's not a big chunky thing like that but it's just got a wee bit of extra comfort and every single bike i own the first thing i do when i get a new bike is i put a, a fly on it from from terry and they're not even made anymore i've just got a, a stash of them in the cupboard that's actually good to know because i've i've struggled finding the proper saddle anymore and i should have kept i you mentioned rolls i got rid of an old stationary bike the other day and before i let it go out the door i had to take the titanium rolled saddle off of it to keep it again my yeah. wife rolled her eyes she says you ever gonna ride that i said no it's kind of heavy but she's i kept it anyway my, my last road race bike was reynolds 853 uh with oh, juris on it yeah. and a ratty old blue roll saddle where the leather had worn off where my thighs had dropped the sides <laughs> Just because it was like a, an old friend underneath my bum. Yeah. <laughs> um, cycling item you would never be caught using. <laughs> oh, um, I think the worst thing I've ever bought and then instantly got rid of was it also dates back to my uh, my time trialing days. And it was a mirror to let you see the road ahead with your head down on the tri bars. <laughs> Uh, and that lasted for about a mile before I realized I was going to die a very horrible and messy death very, very quickly. Um, current bit of kit, and I'm going to lose a lot of uh, a lot of friends with this. I'm not particularly fond of Rafa as a brand. Oh. So I don't think I'd ever wear anything by Rafa. I have never worn anything by Rafa, but everybody who is, if, if you are either all in or you are not at all when it comes to that brand of clothing, I don't... I, I don't know why. I haven't worn it, so I don't know what the big deal is. Some of the kit's fantastic. Um, the prices are, are frankly terrifying. Yeah. But it's, it's 
I, I talked at great length with one of the guys who was involved in developing the brand. Um, and there's there's a cynicism to the exploitation of that old kind of black and white Arnberg trench with moody shots kind of thing that, yeah. that I find deeply offensive. <laughs> but the kit itself, there is some great kit there. So, you know, you're not an idiot for choosing it. I just don't like the way the whole thing's branded. All right. Yeah. Okay. No, okay. no those are those are genuinely honest. I like it because, we, yeah, for example, I'm not, well, I am pretty far away from Seattle and there is a boutique a Rafa store in Seattle that makes it feel like you're walking into a store that's immediately judging you. So no offense to them, but I think that for the same reason, I really hate the rules, you know, the whole Illuminati thing. Oh yeah. Uh Oh, people, people bringing up rule five. I mean, it's a reason for me to disregard them as a friend for life. (laughs) Cycling should be fun. All this hardened the fuck up thing. <laughs> you know why I love what you just said? Frank Strack from Velominati is is a, fa- a friend of the show, and I'm going to actually be doing a live show with him this spring, so I'll be sure and mention that to him again. It, it, to be fair, some of it is very funny, oh, but it's yeah. the same thing. It's, it's tapping in, even with a humorous bent, which they do have. Yeah. You know, to, to that whole... It, it's it's the same culture where you see people with their leg hanging off. You know, they've, they've crashed into a bench. There was a one of the British women time trialists at the Worlds had a massive gash that needed two hours of surgery, and she was lauded for finishing the race. You know, it's the same as concussion in yeah. rugby or American football or whatever. We have to get away from this celebrating people being stupidly butch. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it, it, don't, you've got another hour of podcast now. We should move swiftly along before I get started. Anymore, <laughs> no, I actually, I, I I agree with you, and I and from every time I talk to Frank about it, he just wishes people wouldn't have taken it so over the top and so seriously. He says this is all firmly intended to be tongue in cheek, and you yeah. Know, so yeah, it's 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 too bad that there are those out there ruining it for us. Um, so I guess I could probably I I got two left. Uh, best cycling commentator you consider in the business today. Um, I would say Rob Hatch. Um, he's one of the few who takes the trouble to learn how to pronounce people's names properly. And yeah. in fact, he even gets a hard time for it sometimes because people don't know that's how you should pronounce the name. <laughs> um, the prep he does for races is astonishing. You know, he's got every bit of detail to his fingers. He's a, a historian of the sport, so he knows, you know, the background of riders, the background of races, and he's got a really nice commentating voice. And it's weird because his natural voice, when you speak to him, you know, away from the mic, <laughs> is fairly broad Yorkshire, which is quite a, a distinctive British accent, which some people might find hard to to listen to. Not to listen to, but to understand. Okay. Uh, but his, his own mic voice is just beautiful, you know, Queen's English extremely clear and he reads the race well and the big thing and he shares with with another guy a bbc commentator called simon brotherston both of them aren't scared to shut up you know if the race demands just stepping back and letting people absorb it themselves or there's nothing interesting to actually say they're not happy you know they're not unhappy for there to be dead mic time and there are other commentators who i may or may not mention who just can't (laughs) shut up and it actually detracts from the race you know, so Rob Hatch, with a, a an honourable mention to Simon Brotherton, who mostly works or Brotherton, who mostly works for the BBC in the UK. Oh, that was perfect how you mentioned though being able to let just a race happen because you can tell when a commentator is not only trying to fill but they are bored themselves. Yeah. And it's like, if you don't have to say anything, you don't have to. It's fine. Don't worry yeah. about it. We're fine. We understand. You know, and but I, 
I guess we tell you it's a hard job though. I mean, we've oh, done yeah. we've had a lot over the years of people asking us to do commentary streams. Um, you know, where they can turn down the volume and, yeah. and we'll do the commentary. There, there's, I mean, there's endless numbers of problems. The, the first is syncing, you know, because it, with the oh. internet all over the world, you, your commentary could be a kilometre behind or a, com- yeah. you know, a kilometre ahead of the race. Uh, you also have problems when you take away the mics at the race. You'd be surprised how much atmosphere you get from the helicopters or the disc wheels in the yeah. time trial, all that kind of thing. Um, but the other thing is it's just plain hard. It's a really difficult job. So even the worst of these guys, you have to admire the amount of work they put into it because they have to have you know details of all those riders to hand. And talking for five hours straight, and I know it's hard to believe because I've been waffling one for so long chatting to you, but it's actually <laughs> really hard work. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then that's something that I guess we all kind of take for granted that maybe, hey, these guys are just able to click on the mic and go for it. You know, no, they've got to understand that, you know, even when uh, here in the States, we get uh, classic Paul and Phil, when Paul rambles on about a castle and the history of that castle and things like that, you, that just isn't something that Paul obviously stores in his short term memory. Those are things well, that I'm going to really depress you now. Yeah. Because this this broke my heart when I discovered this. Because I, you know, for me, Phil and Paul are the the voice of cycling yeah. during the eighties and nineties. Oh, yeah. it, it was all suitcase of courage and you know blah blah. <laughs> and I was so impressed at the amount of research they'd done. And you know, this chateau was made in fifteen seventeen. Oh yeah. And it, you know, grows this grape which is made into such and such a wine. It's all in the road book. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. I bet that's all like tourist information. Yeah, so when you open the road book, it'll say, and at, you know, kilometre 71, we pass the Chateau de Blah Blah. Yeah. So I was I was so gutted because I pictured Paul, you know, sitting in his diamond mining in Africa <laughs> or whatever before he came over for yeah. the race, you know, looking at the equivalent of Google Earth to work out what was going to happen at a given point in the race. But no, it's all in the road book. No, he's just, they hand it to him in his dressing room and he's good to go yeah. from there. Shit. Well, the curtain gets pulled back way too often. Oh, my, thanks for crushing my dreams, Jim. I'm a John. <laughs> Why did I call you Jim? I just, I'm not even editing that out. I'm keeping it all in here. Last question. Biggest pet peeve about cyclists. What pisses you off the most about the people who participate in the sport? Um, actually, this is this is my pet peeve, and it's um, poor discipline in group rides. Um, I, when I, I mean, this is me being grumpy old man again, Pat. <laughs> <laughs> when I started in the sport, you know, an experienced rider would take you aside and show you how to ride, you know, yeah. through and off and twin pace lines and all that kind of stuff. And it meant that when you were out in a group, um, you were a, even a big group would be quite a compact thing, which behaved predictably and was easy for drivers to pass. Yeah. You know, we talked about the, you know, the, the conflict between drivers and cyclists earlier. Now you go, you'll see a, a group ride, which they're all in the same club kit, so it's clearly an organised ride, and it'll be spread over, you know, half a mile, three quarters of a mile of the road, yeah. making something that should be easy and predictable to deal with incredibly irritating. And they're not even safe with themselves. So I, I miss that thing where you would go almost serve an apprenticeship, you know, as you, yeah. you grew in the, the sport with someone teaching you how to ride in a group. And, you know, you would bash handlebars, all that kind of stuff. Just do drills to try and get comfortable being in that pack, which, you know, you need to be when you're in a road race. 
space. And I don't see that now. Um, and that's a side effect of that recreational boom we were talking about earlier. But it's, I mean, it's not a big peeve, but if I had one, it would be that one. Well, yeah, and I associate that almost with the elitist nature sometimes that road cyclists get pressed into. There is a learning curve in the sport, but so many of the established riders anymore don't want to help others with that learning curve. And, yeah, and they're on a bike, you know, they deserve your respect, whether they're in, you know, tennis shoes or whether they're in, you know, kangaroo hide latest uh, lace ups from, you know, whoever, yeah. uh, you know, if, if they're a cyclist, they're a cyclist. There we go, John. Uh, I'm I, I kept you on here for almost an hour, well over an hour. So uh, first of all, it's God not, help your listeners, Pat. No, that, uh, you know what's going to happen. Most of them are going to probably say, "Hey, you should do more long stuff like that with interesting people who who actually have more opinions." And I'm not bashing any of my oh, shit. I just bashed all my other interviews, <laughs> didn't I? Uh, be, but it's it's nice to get people with with ability to speak clearly and it's kind of funny that i'm stammering over that sentence slightly ironic but it's it's also fun to have people who are passionate about the sport and that's the one thing i find in common with all the people who come on the show they love it and they and they keep going with it and they find their niche whatever it may be you seem to have found it pretty well for somebody who actually gets to make a living doing this so nice work well, it was uh, it was make or break. We had to try because otherwise we just couldn't afford the time. And it's even now, you know, all the money does is provide time. It's it's yeah. not about getting rich because you know, you know, oh, you're shit. a podcaster. Yeah, yeah. You know, this isn't a medium where you're ever going to get rich. <laughs> but if you're lucky enough to, you know, to to get, to be able to free up the time to do it, um, I count I count myself extremely lucky indeed for the connections I make, for chatting to you know, folk like yourself, for the social media friends that I've made. Who you know, some of them I've met in real life, and weren't you know, they were exactly the same people as they are online. Absolutely. So yeah, I count myself very lucky indeed. Well, thank you for your time, everybody. For those shows, you can find them over at velocast.awesound, A-W-E-S-O-U-N-D.com. Is that probably the best way they can find out and get a hold of things if they don't already subscribe? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, you know, if you want, um, I'm at VeloCastJohn on Twitter. Um, if you, you know, if you hit me up on Twitter, I can I can organize you with a free month listening if you want to try it before you, you decide if you want to subscribe or not. There we go. The cheap bastards that listen to this show are going to be all over that, all over that. I tell you, it's, it's the best time of year for me, though, because, I mean, we do shows all throughout the year. Um, but now we've actually got some racing to talk about. You yeah. know, in December, I'm just about ready to, to give up podcasting forever because you're talking about nothing but doping and changes in rules and transfers. Yeah. But now we've got some racing. If you want to if you want to listen to the shows and find out what we're about, it's a, it's a good time. We've got racing coming up. I can't wait. Thanks, man. See, what did I tell you? Great guy to speak to. It's always fun having those types of people to, to get involved with. And, you know, not everybody who's passionate about the sport might be at the top end of, of the peloton or be a, a, a racer or a rider. Everybody, that's what I truly love about all you guys and cycling. And I'm not kissing up just to gain more listeners, I promise. Maybe just a little. I love that cycling is an environment that creates such passion. I guess some people might say they have, you know, NASCAR fans are crazy about NASCAR. They can talk about it all day. I can watch 
fucking Super Bowl next weekend, and it they will start talking about it at 4 a.m. Hell, they've been talking about it for weeks. So I guess I'm not saying anything new or original. But, man, I love talking about bikes, and I love talking about bike racing, and I love talking about people who are just as passionate about it as I am. And that's what this last conversation was. I know you guys are thinking, holy shit, that went long. I had to split it up into two sections. Well, that's my gift to you. You're welcome. <laughs> oh, that was fun. That feels refreshing. I'm going to go train. I've been riding a lot, you guys, so get ready. I'm going to kick your asses this summer. Send me your events so I can come and challenge myself and have something to train for, especially when the beer starts flowing, which is not too far away from right now. We will catch you next time. Take care. 